Chain Review Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Tune Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-E-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M or by calling 0141 772 That's 0141 772 This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday the 30th of August 2023 from the business section. Herald reporter sees Scottish salmon farm mortalities. This article is by Vicky Allen. After record-breaking mortalities in 2022, the salmon farming industry in Scotland is facing another turbulent year of shockingly high fish deaths and reduced harvest forecasts, which is already being part-blamed on blooms of micro-jellyfish. Earlier this year, I went on an official visit to a salmon farm off Mull and saw an example of a recently stocked site in good health. But given the huge mortalities, this is not the full picture. So, at the beginning of August, I visited a site that anti-salmon farm activist Don Staniford had heard was in the midst of a mortalities crisis. The occasional mort, disposed of because of disease or gill health problems, is a matter of routine, but there were signs elsewhere that these fish were part of something beyond the average, a bigger, more troubling mortality event. Last year was a record-breaker for mortalities across the Scottish salmon industry, with death figures doubling to 15 million. This year, if early data is anything to go by, promises to smash through these records. June losses have been higher than for any previous June, 1.46%, compared with 1.33% in June 2022 and 0.54% in June 2018. The conservation charity Wild Fish recently pointed out that, so far this year, more than 5.6 million salmon have died on Scottish farms, 1.6 million more than in the same period last year. In one of the sections of Beckerfrost's Geesgill Farm, it's possible to see nets of dead fish being hauled up from pens. In another area, dead fish float on the surface after having been treated by a hydrolyser. This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday the 30th of August 2023 from the Voices section. Scottish alcohol deaths, actions not words needed to save lives. 
This article is by Justina Murray. It is concerning, frustrating and disheartening to hear that Scotland's alcohol death toll continues to rise, but it is perhaps not surprising. Not so long ago, we could pride ourselves on being a world leader in tackling alcohol harm, with the introduction of the Minimum Unit Pricing, MUP, back in 2012. But the journey of what happened next, or maybe what didn't happen, explains a lot about how we got where we are today with this grim toll of over 11,000 alcohol deaths in the past decade alone. We seem to see alcohol harm and alcohol deaths as somewhat inevitable in Scotland, an unfortunate byproduct of our drinking culture. And isn't this just a bit of fun, because everybody loves a drink, don't they? And it's always wine o'clock somewhere. At Scottish Families, we support families who have lost loved ones to alcohol, who are living every day with their loved ones drinking, and those whose loved ones are in recovery, which brings its own stresses for families constantly fearful of relapse. They describe the challenges of living in our alcohol-everywhere environment in Scotland, a permissive alcogenic backdrop to their everyday lives. It is almost impossible nowadays to find an alcohol-free space to enjoy as a family. But it wasn't always like this. We portray ourselves as a nation which has forever loved its drink. But only in recent years have we introduced alcohol in cinemas, bookshops, coffee shops, at family and community events, and as an essential part of the weekly supermarket shop. This year we saw the Edinburgh Fringe, one of the world's leading arts festivals, sponsored by an alcohol company, which may have looked like philanthropic support for the arts, but was a brilliant marketing move. And it was ironic to note that the Fringe's welfare hub for performers was in the alcohol-free venue of the local Quaker Meeting House, a move interestingly very much welcomed by the artists. Like many workplaces, many of our staff at Scottish Families have personal experience of alcohol farm. I was, probably slightly smugly to be honest, talking to someone recently about all of our work events being alcohol-free, which definitely requires a bit more imagination, but guarantees everyone feels safe and included. She said, nobody would brag about having a heroin-free wedding which I thought was a brilliant retort and very true. Both are mind-altering and mood-altering and addictive substances, albeit only one of them is legal. But we have become so used to alcohol everywhere to mark every celebration, commiseration and every other event that being alcohol-free, or sober-curious as some say, still feels noteworthy rather than normal. The alcohol industry presents itself as a benign protector of jobs and champion promoter of tourism, but their prolonged legal action challenging MUP and delaying its implementation until 2018 inevitably contributed to today's reality. The price point per unit today is the same as that set for the original legislation in 2012, a woefully inadequate 50p. 
the immediate and positive impact of MUP in reducing consumption, reducing hospital admissions and reducing deaths has diminished with each year that has passed. The industry continue to play this card, encouraging the First Minister to announce to Parliament in April that he had heard their concerns about Scottish Government plans for marketing restrictions and he had sent his officials back to the drawing board on the issue. International evidence shows that the three best buys in the World Health Organization's view of action on price, availability and marketing are the most effective ways to reduce alcohol harm and deaths, alongside a choice of good quality and easy-to-access treatment and support for those concerned about their alcohol use. The Scottish Government knows all of this, and almost six years ago, November 2018, published Scotland's Alcohol Framework and Rights, Respect and Recovery Strategy to make it all happen. Since then, it feels we have waited and waited for all of their bold, evidence-based commitments to be realised, but with little sign of implementation. This is in stark contrast to their response to the drugs death crisis, which has had its own task force, national drugs mission, £250 million of new investment, and very clear written standards for drug treatment services to deliver. I'm not sure how much longer families can wait for action to happen. What we certainly don't need are any more words, platitudes, plans or strategies. It's actions, not words, which will save lives. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 30th of August 2023. Arts and Entertainments. Best of Scotland, Doogie Vipond on the scariest part of performing with Deacon Blue by Paul English. He's presented live television, hosted countless events and sat behind a drum kit in one of the country's best loved bands for 35 years. Asked Doogie Vipond to sing and he has all the nerves of an absolute beginner. It's absolutely terrifying, says the 56 year old presenter and founder member of the band Deacon Blue. I've worked a lot in telly over the years and you need a certain amount of confidence to do live TV, but walking down to the front of the stage and singing live in front of an audience is the most terrifying thing I do. And when you get terrified, you get tense. When you get tense, you close your throat. And when you close your throat, you start singing sharp. So I have to really prepare for it every time. In recent years, fans of the band have grown familiar with the sight of Vipon taking his turn on vocals for DB's cover of Bob Dylan's Forever Young which has become a staple in their live set. That song is one of a clutch of new recordings featured in Peace Will Come, an album of acoustic songs released this month as part of a new best-of compendium spanning the band's four decades. Recorded at Chem 19 Studios in Blantyre, the record features lo-fi reimaginings of some of the band's classic singles such as Chocolate Girl, Cover From The Sky and When Will You, brackets, Make My Telephone Ring, close brackets, as well as a cover of Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark. We all sing on When Will You. I was terrified that I would mess it up because even during the song I was thinking, this is such a lovely take. So I basically didn't sing the last note, he says laughing. All these insecurities came into my head. I was worried I would mess the whole thing up by going sharp in the last note. When Deacon Blue's first incarnation split at the top of their game in 1994, Vipin went on to develop a career in TV and radio. 
but the band he joined as a student aged 18 on a meeting with a Maryhill English teacher still gives him as much fulfilment as it did in the 1980s. I met Ricky, brackets, Ross, the band's frontman, close brackets, this sophisticated teacher with spiky hair when I was 18. I was in awe of his songwriting ability and how serious he was about it all, so to go from that meeting to sitting behind him for nearly 40 years is so lovely. I'm still amazed by his energy and talent and ability to communicate with an audience, and it's amazing we still have a voice to be creative together within that. There's still a spark within the band, and I think we'll do something new again. That creativity has seen Deacon Blue release six albums since their 2012 comeback LP, The Hipsters, with their most successful 2020's City of Love, returning them to once familiar territory at the business end of the UK Top 10. This month, they will set off on a tour that takes them from the UK arena circuit to Australia and New Zealand, as well as gigs in South Africa for the first time. You sometimes think, how the hell did we end up with a following there? We were offered gigs in South Africa during apartheid, but we were vehemently against it. We just wouldn't have entertained it. So for that to be opened up and for us to get a chance to play there is incredible. I'm a massive rugby fan, so it'll be interesting if Scotland beat them in the Rugby World Cup before we get there. In the recent visit of a pal from Melbourne provided the drummer with some ad hoc market research as to his band's popularity down under. He told me he was sick of hearing us on the radio over there, he says. He said we're on non-stop and he had come to Scotland to get a rest from it. It's bizarre, but it's very exciting. We played there in 2019 for the first time since the late 80s, and we were amazed at the reaction. We ended up having to put on extra shows. So this time we're going back and playing bigger venues. It was a proper adventure for us back in 1989. I bought a snare drum that I still use to record now, and we were given two passports because while we were in Australia, they were processing our visas for our tour of America. I remember thinking we must be really, really important. It felt like the only people in the world who could have two passports were spies and people in Deacon Blue. There was a genuine sense of breaking new ground. We were five guys and a lassie from Scotland just giving it a go. It's such a lovely surprise to be able to go back and find we still have an audience there. Deacon Blue's UK tour begins this month including dates at Glasgow Ovo Hydro, Aberdeen's P&J Arena and Edinburgh's Usher Hall. The album Peace Will Come is released as part of the career-spanning box set You Can Have It All and Best Of LP All The Old 45s on 1 September. DeaconBlue.com by Paul English This is from The Herald on Thursday the 31st of August 2023 from the news section. Scandal, blunders and apologies. How NHS audiology let patients down. This article is written by Helen McArdle. Patients relying on NHS Scotland's audiology services have been let down by an absence of national leadership, workforce shortages and a lack of any quality assurance. That was the conclusion of a damning 87-page review published on Friday which has set out more than 50 recommendations. It also marks the culmination of a scandal which first surfaced following criticism over poor care provided over several years to a disabled patient in Lothian, Child A, who was eventually diagnosed with a severe and profound hearing loss aged eight. The Watchdog It is possible that were it not for the dogged efforts of Child A's parents, the failings in audiology services nationally would never have come under scrutiny. 
In May 2021, details of the case emerged when the Scottish Public Services Ombudsman, SPSO, published an investigation report into their complaint. NHS Lothian was forced to apologise for what the watchdog described as unreasonable, sustained and significant failures in its diagnostic and testing process. Child A was non-verbal and had complex needs, including cerebral palsy and learning difficulties. The parents suspected significant hearing impairment from the age of around two and a half to three, but repeated investigations between June 2012 and January 2018 failed to reach a diagnosis. Audiologists told the child's parents that they found it difficult to obtain reliable test results due to the youngster's communication difficulties, and Child A was discharged twice from the NHS Lothian's audiology service after staff said they were satisfied they did not have any significant hearing loss. Fobbed off and unhappy, the parents sought a referral to another health board for a second opinion. Only then, by which time Child A was eight years old, was severe to profound hearing loss identified in both ears caused by CMV, a congenital viral infection which, had it been detected earlier, should have triggered six monthly screenings for signs of deafness. In the end, Child A was fitted with hearing aids, but the prolonged delay in diagnosis meant they were unlikely to be a suitable candidate for cochlear implants, surgical devices which can provide a sensation of hearing. In its report on the case, the watchdog said Child A had suffered a significant injustice as a result of missed red flags. They had been unfairly branded difficult to test by audiologist Atlothian, who seemed focused on trying to prove Child A could hear rather than considering that they had a hearing impairment. Case Review As a direct result of the blunders described in Child A's care, NHS Lothian commissioned the British Academy of Audiology, BAA, to carry out an independent review into its paediatric audiology services. This was one of the requirements set out by the SPSO to determine whether other youngsters had suffered substandard care. The answer, set out in the BAA report in December 2021, was that many had. After auditing 1,113 patient records, the BAA said that 155 children had experienced significant failures. This included five who were unsuitable for cochlear implants as a result of delays in the diagnosis of their hearing loss. Three areas of Lothian's paediatric audiology service had a very high risk of significant failure, said the BAA, which criticised everything from poor practice and testing protocols to a lack of routine screening to identify infants born with hearing loss. These failings, it said, have adversely impacted the early years spoken language acquisition of numerous children, affecting a number of these children for life. National Picture It is now clear that these issues were not confined to NHS Lothian.
An independent review, commissioned by the Scottish Government in January 2022, and carried out by Professor Jackie Taylor, a former president of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons Glasgow, RCPSG, has identified many areas ripe for improvement. Her report describes a service which has fallen victim to an absence of national leadership, strategic planning and workforce planning, limited access to graduate and postgraduate training and low opportunities for continuing professional development and skills maintenance for those once in post. In recent years, there has also been no quality assurance of paediatric and adult audiology services. The report echoes claims outlined in a letter to the Herald by whistleblowers back in 2019, who voiced concerns over extremely poor standards of clinical practice at Borders General Hospital in Melrose. Three senior audiologists said they had tried in vain to flag over a hundred harms or near misses, including in paediatrics, which had resulted in patients being given unnecessary steroids, medical devices and CT and MRI scans. As a result, they said they had found themselves subject to bullying and intimidation by senior management. NHS Borders said that external advisers had found their audiology staff to be competent clinicians. Four years on, Professor Taylor depicts NHS Audiology Scotland-wide as a service burdened by multiple systemic problems. An overhaul appears long overdue. That article was written by Helen McArdle. This is from the Herald on Thursday the 31st of August 2023 from the news section. Yusuf urged to kick-start heat pumps revolution with cities pilots. This article is written by David Ball. SNP and Green Ministers have been told to act urgently and set out how they will get 2030 legal climate targets back on track, including piloting large-scale transformation of how commercial buildings are heated in Scotland's cities. Scotland has pledged to cut 1990 levels of carbon emissions by 75% by 2030. Emissions have been cut by around 50% in the last 30 years, meaning the same level of progress is now required in the next decade for the aims to remain on track. One of the toughest tasks facing the Scottish Government is transforming how buildings are heated, with a move away from fossil fuel boilers to sustainable systems such as heat pumps and better insulated properties. Green Zero Carbon's Buildings Minister Patrick Harvey is set to table updated plans for his strategy later this year, with the Scottish Government's progress in increasing the proportion of buildings with renewable heating systems having stalled. Campaigners are calling for attention to also be given to cleaning up how offices and other commercial buildings are heated. A climate group made up of academics and experts has called on Humza Yusuf to use next week's programme for government to bring forward urgent action to ramp up progress. A new report by the Climate Emergency Response Group, 
CERG, has called on Mr Youssef to create the right environment for commercial building sector commitment to a large-scale retrofit and heat decarbonisation pilot in every Scottish city. It adds that many owners and tenants of offices, shops and industrial buildings are looking to meet their own net-zero commitments through greening their property portfolios and workplaces. But the document has warned that there is a lack of clarity on standards and heat technologies, making it difficult to plan the package of works and raise the necessary funding, adding that this barrier to delivery can be removed through the right balance of regulation, incentives and support for coordination. CERG has called for Mr Harvey's upcoming Heat in Buildings Bill, set to be announced in next week's programme for government, to include regulatory requirements for energy efficiency and phase-out of fossil fuel heating for all buildings, including non-domestic buildings. CERG has also called for the Scottish Government to support pilot projects in every city, The report stresses that could be done if ministers commit to work with city-local authority leaders, investors, developers and key commercial building owners and tenants to pilot large-scale retrofit and heat decarbonisation programmes involving public sector and private assets in each city. It adds, where possible, these projects should also consider energy generation opportunities. The group has also called for Minister to introduce a net-zero test to inform all policy and investment decisions, which could potentially put future roads improvement projects like duelling the A9 in doubt. CERG has also appealed for the Scottish Government to enable local authorities to unlock the finance needed to drive action on climate change mitigation and adaptation and introduce fiscal levers as part of a coherent strategy to reduce car reliance and improve places for people. The report adds, if effectively and comprehensively addressed, these proposals could deliver a significant step change in Scotland's response to the climate emergency. The four proposals include two cross-cutting systemic proposals which will have far-reaching impact across sectors and places and two proposals focused on fast-tracking action in high-carbon priority sectors where delivery is lagging, clear plans are lacking and early business and public engagement is paramount for a just transition. CERG believes meaningful and measurable action against these four proposals this year is essential to meet the 2030 climate targets and give businesses, investors and citizens the clarity they need. The report has stressed that all proposals are within the powers of the Scottish Government and strongly align with the Scottish Government's commitments and priorities. That article was written by David Ball. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 31st of August, from the Sports Section... Celtic discover Champions League group stage opponents. Report by Ewan Payton. Celtic have discovered their Champions League group stage opponents. 
Brendan Rodgers' side will compete in the 2023-24 competition for the second successive season. The Scottish champions will come up against Feyenoord, Atletico Madrid and Lazio. The draw took place this evening at the Grimaldi Forum in Monaco. Celtic will be Scotland's sole representative in UEFA's elite tournament this season. It comes after Rangers failed to qualify after their 7-3 loss to PSV. They dropped into the Europa League as a result. And the financial benefits of what have already been made clear for Celtic. With only one Scottish team representing the Premiership, Celtic are due to pocket a bigger slice of the TV money available. The Parkhead Club are set to rake in an additional £2.5 million in television revenue off the back of Rangers' defeat in Eindhoven. The figure is the amount Celtic earned from their six group stage matches last season. Rangers, of course, pocketed the same. However, this term, all of that cash will go straight into the Parkhead coffers. It's believed the Scottish champions are guaranteed 10% of the allocated total of UK TV pool money. TV pool payments account for 15% of all finances distributed by UEFA to Champions League clubs. So, that means Celtic will be due £5 million this year, doubling the amount earned in TV money from last season. Every win in the Champions League earns a club £2.4 million, while a draw rakes in £775,000. In that article was by Ewan Payton. This is from the Herald Scotland on Friday the 1st of September 2023. From the news section. FM facing calls from SNP members to end tax breaks for private schools. Report by Kathleen Nutt. Hamza Youssef is to face a new demand from the SNP grassroots at his party's conference to end private schools being eligible for tax breaks given to charities. A resolution has been submitted by members to the party's annual conference in Aberdeen this October, calling for the Scottish Government to withdraw the benefit to the institutions and also to introduce a new levy on each pupil place in the sector. It points to the benefits that children who have gone to fee-paying schools have over their state-educated peers, and also raises concerns over the educational attainment gap more broadly which sees children from better-off backgrounds achieve more qualifications than those from more financially hard-pressed households. The motion put down by two SNP branches also goes on to call for the money raised by ending charitable status for independent schools and through the introduction of the new levy, which it says would be similar to value-added tax or VAT, should be spent on closing the attainment gap. Lodged by the party's branches in Peterhead and Glasgow Proven, it reads, Conference recognises that the educational attainment gap remains stubbornly high between those from the least advantaged backgrounds and those from the most advantaged backgrounds. Conference also recognises that private schools benefit from charity status and many leavers from these establishments achieve greater positions in the field of employment. It adds, This conference agrees that in order to close the educational attainment gap, and give our least advantaged children a better start in life, that the SNP Scottish Government should use the taxation powers at its disposal and create a tax equivalent to value-added tax for each place at these private schools, and that we should end their entitlement to charitable status. 
conference also agrees that the revenue raised from this should be directly deployed to fully close this educational attainment gap. As charities, independent schools do not pay tax on annual profits, which instead must be reinvested for the advancement of education for the public benefit. The status also gives them other tax benefits, including gift aid on donations. In April 2021, the institutions lost their eligibility for charitable relief on their business rates, but they were allowed to keep their charitable status. In 2018, it was found that 73% of Scots supported private schools being stripped of the benefit, compared to 13% who did not. Private schools are attended by about 4% of pupils in Scotland, yet many of those educated in them dominate professions such as medicine and law. Both Mr Yusuf and Scottish Labour leader Anas Sarwar were privately educated at Hutchison's Grammar in the south side of Glasgow, where annual fees for 2023-24 are currently £16,177 for pupils in Secondary 1 and Secondary 2 and £15,877 for those in Secondary 3 to Secondary 6. Mr Sarwar has come under repeated pressure for sending his children to the same school rather than to a local state school. Opponents of private schools say they perpetuate and entrench inequality in society by giving pupils whose parents can afford to pay an advantage by accessing smaller classes, more personal help with academic work, greater sporting opportunities and other advantages, such as the chances to build informal social networks to gain access to top jobs. Supporters argue that fee-paying schools offer parents and children greater choice and can alleviate the pressure of pupil numbers on the state system. They also point out that many schools offer means-tested bursaries to pupils. A spokeswoman for the Scottish Council of Independent Schools, the organisation which represents the sector, said, The independent school sector in Scotland is diverse, progressive and committed to making a strong contribution to society. It is significantly different from the sector in England, as a result of the charity test introduced by the Scottish Government and the removal of business rates relief both of which are unique to Scotland and which have already increased the taxation burden on independent schools substantially. Almost 3,000 children are in receipt of bursaries at Scotland's independent schools and these are rigorously means-tested. Scotland's independent schools already work in partnership with the state sector, such as offering teaching for state pupils, and we would welcome discussions about how to build in the work we are already doing so that we can support even more children in Scotland. We will achieve much more by working together than by imposing a tax which would hit aspirational families hardest, would lead to the disruption of education for the children whose parents would be pushed out the sector, as well as increasing the burden on state schools. The motion has been listed on the SNP's draft agenda for its annual conference, and if selected, will be debated at the Aberdeen event in October. That report was by Kathleen Nutt. This is from the Herald Scotland, on Friday the 1st of September 2023, from the news section. Scotland short-term lets, Glasgow-Edinburgh numbers low. Report by Brian Donnelly. 
Only a fraction of Scotland's short-term lets operators have signed up for a new licensing regime, new figures reveal. Scotland's largest city has received just 78 applications for licences under new short-term lets legislation, the Scottish Government figures show. In Edinburgh, where the Council believes there are 12,000 short-term lets, there had been 90. The Association of Scotland's Self-Caterers, ASSC, criticised the risable statistics showing a low level of short-term let licensing applications across Scotland. From October the 1st, all short-term lets from self-catering units to B&Bs or people sharing a room in their home will have to obtain a licence to operate. The official statistics, published by the Scottish Government on Thursday, show a total of 2,587 so-called valid applications for short-term lets licences received by local authorities up to March the 31st. The Scottish Government previously estimated that there were around 32,000 short-term lets in Scotland. The ASSC said the situation in Scotland's two largest cities is stark. It showed Edinburgh Council had only received 90 valid applications for short-term let licensing in a city where the local council previously said there were 12,000 such properties. In Glasgow, the most recent data revealed that the low number of 78 had been received. Glasgow City Council said it cannot give a figure for how many applications it is expecting. The figures only cover up to March the 31st. The next tranche of data, covering April to June 2023, will not be available until after the October deadline. Fiona Campbell, Chief Executive of the ASSC, said, Short-term let licences remains riddled with problems as the October the 1st deadline approaches and these statistics offer cold comfort for the Scottish Government. Widespread concern remains throughout the sector after ministers completely ignored our policy solutions to put things right. Indeed, what the frankly risable statistics don't show is the total cost for these applications for small businesses like self-catering and B&Bs. For many, it is a cost too high to bear, and many long-established self-caterers have already said enough is enough. City of Edinburgh Council said last week that 240 had registered, with 111 approved, with Council Leader Cammy Day adding it will continue to work closely with the sector to ensure everyone understands what they need to do to meet the deadline and operate within the law. A spokesman for Glasgow City Council also said it is likely existing hosts will not put in applications until nearer the cut-off point, adding, We are now seeing a rise in applications being lodged as the October 1st 2023 deadline approaches. In Aberdeen, the number was 32, and in Dundee, just 18. That report was by Brian Donnelly. From the Herald, Scotland. Friday the 1st of September, from the sports section, Rangers discover Europa League group stage opponents by Ewan Payton. Rangers have discovered their Europa League group stage opponents. Michael Bale's side will compete in the 2023-24 tournament, having dropped out of Champions League qualifying. 
the Ibrox Club will come up against Real Betis, Sparta Prague and Aris Limassol. The draw took place this afternoon at the Grimaldi Forum in Monaco. Rangers will be Scotland's sole representative in the UEFA's secondary club competition this season. It comes after Aberdeen missed the chance to join them after their 5-3 defeat to BK Hacken. Barry Robson's side will instead play in the Europa Conference League. The final of this season's tournament will be played at the Aviva Stadium in Dublin. And, while that may seem like a long way away right now for Rangers, given their previous exploits on this stage, it's got to be the long-term ambition. Just two seasons ago, Giovanni Van Bronckhurst led the Ibrox side to the Europa League final in Seville. They cruelly lost on penalties. However, the memories of that cup run still live with the fans to this day and they will be hoping for a repeat this term. Article by Ewan Payton. The Herald on the 1st of September and the Voices section. When will we really do something about the damage to footballers? By Mark Smith. So fractured, so broken, so divided is the political Amstergate just now that it's definitely worth mentioning when all the parties agree on something, and this time they really do agree. Ian Blackford and Douglas Ross are on the same side, for God's sake. We should pay attention. The subject they agree on is football, specifically the damage that's been done and being done to footballers' health and what the football authorities and governments should and must do about it. Mr Blackford is to lead a debate on the subject and the Commons to discuss a few ideas and support is coming from Labour, the Lib Dems and the Tories. One of the ideas under discussion is that dementia in retired footballers should be classed as an industrial injury because of the clear link between condition and how the game is played. A study by the leading expert in this field, Willie Stewart, found that due to repeated heading of the ball, former footballers were three and a half times more likely than non-footballers to die of neurodegenerative brain disease. Some action has been taken already, but only some. The Scottish Football Association has guidelines that limit heading in youth football and bans it completely for under-12s. Professional clubs have also been told to ban their players from heading the ball in training the day before and after a game. This is undoubtedly progress, especially from a sector that is notoriously slow to embrace change. But having spoken to Willie Stewart about this, and having seen for myself as an editor of obituaries just how many footballers die with dementia... I don't think tweaking the guidelines for players is enough. One of the problems is that there's resistance to reforming the game, even though it would be good for the players' health, just as there is in rugby. And that means steps may have to be taken in other areas to force the change that's needed. One of those steps could certainly be the one Mr Blackford and others are suggesting, which is to make dementia in footballers an industrial injury. It would mean that even if players are still forced to head the ball, the very least retired players with dementia would be able to receive more of the support they need, including industrial injury benefits. It would only be treating the symptoms rather than tackling the cause, but it would still be better than nothing. And even if it does go ahead at some point, and I hope it will, it will still not be enough. Why, for example, isn't there a central surveillance system? as there is for CJD, that can identify anyone with early-onset dementia and collate the information with a view to setting what's, seeing what's really going on. It's only with that sort of detailed information that we can start to build the bigger picture. However, dementia in footballers is also important. 
that we need to go over the heads of pe- the people who run the game, which is why there should be a public inquiry into the link with heading the ball. Combined with the evidence from the surveillance and recording, this could actually encourage the government to legislate on the matter, and that might include banning heading. If that's what's needed, so be it. Naturally, probably, there will be people in the game at all levels who would grumble about such an idea, perhaps because they feel it would compromise the integrity of the game, but Dr. Stewart's view on that was pretty clear. My attitude, he said, would be, forget about the integrity of the game, what about the integrity of the brain? Dr. Stewart also made me realise just what we're dealing with here by comparing football to another sport. You wouldn't, he said, put Lewis Hamilton a Formula 1 car after he'd had three pints. But that essentially is what's happening in football. He also said we need to get to the point where playing football with a suspected brain injury is as abhorrent as getting into a car drunk, and yet we're still a long way off that. As proved by Mr Blackford and Mr Ross agreeing on something for once, a consensus is starting to build, which is great. And some action is being taken, including the debate in the Commons. But here's the thing. Footballers are still out there now, heading the ball, the ball today, tomorrow, every Saturday. And the dark truth is that each little impact has potentially large and terrible consequences. Time to do something, wouldn't you think? And that was by Mark Smith. From Herald Scotland, Monday the 4th of September, in the news section, Amber Gibson... Brother Connor jailed for life for her murder. This article is by Jodie Harrison. A man convicted of the murder and sexual assault of his sister in a depraved attack has been jailed for life with a minimum term of 22 years. Connor Gibson, 21, was found guilty of attacking his sister Amber Gibson in the woodland in Hamilton, South Lanarkshire, on November 26, 2021. Gibson stripped his victim before sexually assaulting her. He then beat and strangled her, leaving her body in a park. He was found guilty following a trial at the High Court in Glasgow. Gibson was sentenced at the High Court in Livingston on Monday. Stephen Corrigan, 45, who was found guilty of attempting to defeat the ends of justice and breach of the peace by intimately touching and concealing Amber's body after discovering her at some point in the following two days, instead of contacting the emergency services, was jailed for nine years at the same court. And that article was by Jodie Harrison. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 4th of September, from the news section, Exclusive Disability charities in Glasgow urge SNP to act on hardship. This article was by Caroline Wilson, senior reporter, Disabled people are dying of poverty and the Scottish Government must act urgently to halt a humanitarian catastrophe, campaigners have warned. Tressa Burke, Chief Executive of Glasgow Disability Alliance, GDA, where a quarter of people have a disability, said many in the city were going without help to go to the toilet and shower because they could not afford personal care. The charity leader, who has multiple sclerosis, said she had written to the First Minister saying she didn't want to go to another member's funeral, mentioning that more than one person had taken their own life. She said well-intentioned SNP policies 
on child poverty, self-directed support and 20-minute neighbourhoods had been implemented with no thought or extra measures to protect or involve disabled people. She said there was a lack of state accountability for decisions made at a local level, citing the example of Glasgow cutting £21.5 million from the social care budget, leaving many without essential support in their homes. Ms Burke said she was left furious after attending an anti-poverty summit earlier this year at Holyrood where it was as though we weren't there. She said that an initial request for a meeting with First Minister, Hamza Yousaf, had been refused by his officials, but he did meet with the charity last month. The Scottish Government asked disability groups to help put together a new action to address inequalities, but she said very little had been achieved. It followed the case in England where disabled organisations took the UK Government to court and won because they had not involved the groups in a new strategy. The decision was later overturned by the Court of Appeal on a technicality. She said benefits, including the disability living allowance, were not adequate to meet the costs of being disabled and they were the only group of people who didn't get an uplift in financial support during the pandemic. People are dying and nobody knows and nobody cares, said the charity leader. It's a very unsung story. It only touches people if it touches their family or... Very sadly, if it's a child. In March, Glasgow took the decision to cut £21.5 million from the social care budget and not only that, they took the decision to increase the cost of social care charges to 75% of their income after housing costs, added Ms Burke. That is absolutely shocking. It really is wrong because it's a backdoor tax that disabled people pay in Scotland. In essence, Disabled people are paying for what is equivalent to a mortgage on care charges. There are some disabled people that just aren't taking social care, she added. I sent a letter to the First Minister saying I cannot go to another member's funeral because of poverty. I'm going to a funeral next week of someone who took their own life and they are not the first. Child poverty is a massive thing, but 40% of children living in poverty live in a household with a disabled person so it's nonsense not to tackle the disabled people's poverty. It was an SNP manifesto commitment to scrap care charges and they haven't done it. She said previous governments had also failed to do enough to reduce inequalities. Almost always, the policy intent is good but lacking in understanding and analysis of how disabled people could benefit and what additional measures need to be in place so this can happen, said the charity leader. It follows a report which found disabled people in Glasgow are going without food, electricity and home comforts, including TV and radio, because of the cost of living crisis. One person who took part in the study said they had not put their heating on for two years because of fears over the cost of bills. A group of organisations that represent disabled people in Scotland have written to the First Minister calling for an immediate action plan with the resources behind it. They write, First Minister, it should shock and shame us that the position of disabled people has deteriorated since the UN described our lives as a human catastrophe in 2017, highlighting grave and systematic violations of our human rights as a consequence of welfare reform and cuts to public services. Over 25% of the population in Scotland is disabled, 
and yet we have never been a priority for the Scottish Government. Left to making decisions about policy priorities and how money is spent, local authorities will not prioritise disabled people over their wider communities. Disabled people suffer more when public services, like social care, are cut because we are disproportionately more likely to need or use such services. The letter was co-authored with Disability Equality Scotland, Glasgow Centre for Inclusive Living, Inclusion Scotland and Self-Directed Support Scotland. Disabled charity, SCOPE, estimates that in 2023, on average, disabled households with at least one disabled adult or child need an additional £975 a month to have the same standard of living as non-disabled households. A Scottish Government spokesman said, The Scottish Government remains committed to advancing equality for disabled people, who we recognise are disproportionately impacted by the UK Government's welfare cuts and current cost of living crisis. We are working closely with disabled people's organisations to develop actions that combat the effects the crisis continues to have on disabled people's lives. And that article was an exclusive by Caroline Wilson. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 4th of September, from the news section, Edinburgh Zoo, Panda Pier departure date announced. Article by Gabriel Mackay. The two giant pandas, which have been housed at Edinburgh Zoo since 2011, were returned to China in December this year. Yang Guan, Sunshine, and Tian Tian, Sweetie, a male and a female, arrived in a 10-year loan, which was later extended from the Bifexgia Breeding Centre. It was hoped the pair would produce cubs, but despite several attempts at artificial insemination, none were ever born. Earlier this year, it was announced that Yang Guan and Tian Tian would return to China after the end of the agreement, and Edinburgh Zoo has now confirmed that that took place in December, likely in the first two weeks of the month. From November, panda viewing will be outdoor only, with the zoo planning a giant farewell to the pandas. Alison McLean, carnivore team leader at Edinburgh Zoo, said, we are making arrangements to their partners in China for Yang Guan and Tian Tian to return in early December, possibly during the first week. Visitors to the zoo can expect to see them indoors and outside until the end of November, after which viewing will be outdoors only until they leave. Having cared for Yang Guan and Tian Tian since they arrived in 2011, I will be travelling back to China with them to help them settle into their new homes. David Field, Royal Zoological Society of Scotland Chief Executive, said, With more than a million species at risk of extinction and their natural world in crisis, Yang Guan and Tian have had an incredible impact by inspiring millions of people to care about nature. Through scientific research, alongside the University of Edinburgh, we have also made a significant contribution to our understanding of giant pandas, which will be of real benefit to efforts to protect this amazing species in China. It is encouraging that in recent years, the outlook for giant pandas in the wild has improved, which gives real hope for the future. And that article was by Gabriel Mackay. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 4th of September, from the sports section, Susan Egglestaff, 
Mo Farah prepares to walk away from athletics with a mixed legacy by sports writer Susan Eaglestaff. Few track and field generations have produced an individual quite as successful as Mo Farah. He is, in every corner of the globe, considered one of the greatest athletes of all time. Four Olympic gold medals, twice doing the double-double, six world titles, five European titles plus a raft of British and European records is something only a few could ever dream of accomplishing. In particular, his first gold medal of the 2012 Olympics when he won the 10,000 metres in front of 80,000 jubilant fans in London's Olympic Stadium on Super Saturday will live long in the memory. It's why at the end of his career he will race today in London in the big half before bowing out next Sunday at the Great North Run marks the end of an era. Farah will, almost certainly, never see his achievements surpassed by a fellow Briton, not in his lifetime anyway. But Farah's story was remarkable for more than just what he achieved on the track and road. The 40-year-old was born in Somalia and came to the UK as a child. He has said he was trafficked to this country at the age of nine before being forced into child labour. It was a start few world-class athletes have endured, so what he is going to on to achieve is astonishing. Yet, Farah is not considered by everyone to be the all-encompassing hero. He is viewed by many, myself included, in a very different light to the likes of Jessica Innes-Hill, one of Farah's peers who navigated her career free of any controversies. Farah, in contrast, was rarely far from a scandal, particularly when he was in his heyday. The runner, being linked to doping allegations were all too common and so it is impossible to view his career as entirely unblemished. It should be noted from the off that Farah never tested positive for anything. Not once did he fail a doping test and never was he suspended for any doping violations. Yet, there is a shadow over his career which, at one point, was dark enough to prompt BBC's current affairs programme, Panorama, to investigate him although nothing definitively incriminating or incriminating enough to see him banned was found. The first scandal that engulfed him came ahead of the 2012 Olympics. He missed a doping test after apparently not hearing his doorbell ring when the tester called at his house. It was his second missed test in two years. Then, in the summer of 2017, when the Fancy Bears hacking group released information from the database of the IAAF, the sports gov- global governing body, it reportedly showed that Farah had, the previous year, recorded what is known as atypical values on his athlete biological passport, which tracks an athlete's blood values and can give an indication of doping. It emerged that the IAAF official had noted that his values were far from normal, writing beside his name, Likely doping, passport suspicious, further data is required. In the end, Farah was cleared of wrongdoing after a separate leaked spreadsheet said his records had been now flagged as normal with the last sample, but this is not the kind of attention any Olympic champion would welcome. And that was not the end of the doping controversies. The Englishman was a long-time member of the Nike Oregon Project, a training group based in the United States, led by the now infamous coach Alberto Salazar. The American coach is serving a four-year ban for doping offences, which included tampering with doping control methods, 
and trafficking testosterone. The Nike Oregon project was closed down in the aftermath, but the close association with Salazar wasn't a great one for Farah when these revelations emerged. But perhaps the most incriminating for Farah were the allegations at the centre of the Panorama investigation that he had taken, and then lied about taking, L-carnitine injections. While not prohibited, the performance in enhancing L-carnitine is controversial and Farah did his reputation no favours by forgetting he had taken these injections in 2015. On the track, Farah is unquestionably one of Britain's greatest sports people, but the murkiness of his actions off the track make it impossible for me to look at him in an entirely positive light as he waltzes off into retirement. This may be unfair, because Farah has not been charged as a doping cheat, and he has strenuously denied each and every allegation and accusation of doping, saying he has no tolerance of anyone who breaks the rules. But the shadow cast by so many allegations cannot be ignored. Only time will tell how kindly history judges Farah. His medal collection is unrivaled except for a select few individuals, but there has been a lot of smoke, if no fire. Any athlete who has followed Farah's career should take heed that however many successes one can garner, any reputation can be tarnished if they are involved in doping allegations one too many times. And that article was by Susan Eaglestaff. From the Herald, Sunday 30 September 2023, Sports Section. Callum McGregor reveals how Celtic beat Rangers and silenced Ibrox. By Matthew Lindsay, Chief Football Writer. Callum McGregor has revealed going back to basics helped Celtic put their disappointing run of form behind them and beat Rangers at Ibrox today and confessed they had been guilty of information overload in recent weeks. Parkhead captain McGregor was immense in the middle of the park against Michael Beale's side and inspired the injury-ravaged Scottish champions to a 1-0 win that sent them back to the top of the cinch premiership. The Scotland midfielder and his manager Brendan Rodgers have been criticised by their own supporters in recent weeks after losing to Kilmarnock in the Via Play Cup and drawing with St Johnson in the Premiership. But he confessed there had been a change in approach going into the derby. We probably simplified it a bit this week, he said. We were maybe guilty of information overload at times and with a young group that can be difficult. We tried to strip it back and use the simplicity of the model and layer it up from there. We stuck to our principles and we came out of the traps flying. We played some good football and settled ourselves into the game. If you don't start well here, then you can be in for a difficult afternoon. But I thought we handled the occasion really well. It was a massive win. There was lots of noise and a lot of chat. It's always a difficult place to come. We silenced the crowd and started to get them frustrated. Everybody to a man ran themselves into the ground in terms of duels, tackles and blocks. It's a brilliant moment for us as a group. We're a relatively young group, so to come here and win and to do it under the circumstances that we did, the boys should be feel very good about it. We now have to use it as a positive and fuel for what is to come. There's no point in winning today and then coming back after the international break and starting slowly and only doing all that good work. We also spoke about that in the changing room. Hopefully it can be the springboard for us to kick on. McGregor confessed that not having any fans inside Ibrox to cheer them on had made Celtic even more determined to perform to their best and had made the result even more satisfying. 
However, the 30-year-old who's bidding to win a ninth Scottish title this term knows that Celtic need to continue to perform at the same high level when they return to action after the international break. It's probably like two different fixtures now with no away supporters in, he said. But again, that can galvanise you. It's a really difficult moment to come here. It's almost like a siege mentality where it's everyone in the stadium against you. That's when you need to play your big players and personality to step up. And I thought we did that. It probably makes it even more sweeter. The reason why we play football is obviously to play in front of fans. But if you can't do it, the next best thing is to make them proud watching. And hopefully we did that today. It's a difficult place to come. We showed a big personality and good quality in the game. I think we showed a bit of everything. You show why you're champions. I always think when the going gets tough and the chips are down, there's no better way to come out and perform like that and make a statement. I think all that is the perfect recipe for coming here and putting on a display. In those difficult moments, you have to show your personality and you have to show up. And our big players certainly did that today. The younger players followed that example and I'm really proud of the group in terms of the way that they performed. McGregor continued, We're happy with our day's work, but you know there's a long way to go. I've been over the course many, many times. I've won these ones and I've lost them again. You win it, you enjoy it, then you draw a line underneath it. Then you come back from the international break, good to go again. I think we have to use this. There's no better place to come and win and do it under the circumstances. But we have to use it as a springboard. There's no point in winning today and going back and starting to drop points again. It makes it pointless. We understand in there, everybody feels good in there, but we're under no illusions that we have to kick on. You've got four weeks between every international break now. You have to go strong and your break then go strong and finish the first half of the season very well. We know what's at stake now and we have to get to work. Meanwhile, McGregor has lauded Kiego's after watching the Japanese striker score against Rangers for the sixth time in as many matches and ultimately secure all three points for Celtic. What a finish, he said. It was unbelievable. I said to him in there, I think you're the best striker I've ever seen. In the big moments, he's just ice cold. He showed his quality yet again and showed the importance to the club. I probably would have been disappointed after missing two scoring chances in the first half. But again, in a big moment, he makes up for it. He was excellent. That article was by Harold Matthew Lindsay. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 4th of September, Business Section, Q&D, Glasgow Homes Entrepreneur and Hoco Founder on Fame, by Business Correspondent Brian Donnelly. A Glasgow-based entrepreneur who has launched a BBC television role has told how parenthood steered him onto the path of creating his own business. Here, the company founder also reveals what has changed for him since landing a prime television role with Scotland's Home of the Year. Name, Danny Campbell. What is your business called? Hoko Design, the homeowner's architect. Where is it based? Our studio is in Tradeston, Glasgow, but we work nationally throughout the UK. What does it produce slash do? We're a one-stop shop for transforming your home. We provide residential architectural services and manage projects from start to finish, including interior design and finding the right builder. We specialise in creating spaces that reflect the unique needs and personalities of our clients, whether that's through home extensions, 
garage conversions, loft conversions or ulterior alterations? To whom does it sell? We work exclusively with homeowners who are redesigning or extending their homes. What is its turnover? £1.3 million. How many employees? 12. Why did you take the plunge? In early 2016, I was 25 and my long-term girlfriend and I had the unexpected surprise of becoming parents. I had a bit of an identity crisis. I assumed this meant I wouldn't play rugby anymore. I had to get an office job and settle down. Having always lived a fairly adventurous life, I decided not to settle down quite yet. We got married, we bought a little cottage and our first son Teddy was born. Shortly after, I founded Hoko Design Limited. The next few years were chaos. High growth, disrupting a prestigious and exclusive profession. Two more boys and lots of ups and downs. I have enjoyed every minute of it and I'm so happy to be pursuing what I love and to have found a career I care about. What were you doing before? Before I started HOCO I was playing rugby in Vancouver after completing my master's degree in architecture at De Montfort University. During my studies I continued to work in a variety of different consultancies and even in a zoo and some side hustles. They all gave me valuable experiences in their own way that helped me succeed in business. What do you least enjoy? There isn't much about my work that I don't enjoy, despite there being lots of areas of frustration, imperfection and pain. The least enjoyable part for me is building my social media presence. I have plenty of things to say and I'm sure some of my opinions go against the industry dogma against small projects. The process of sitting down, preparing reels, captions, hashtags is still alien to me and, whilst I understand to make the best of the opportunity I need to be authentic, I do still require a lot of hand-holding, which frustrates me. Since getting my TV role with Scotland's Home of the Year, I have been trying harder as I think it's impossible to ignore these days. Follow me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know if it's working. What are your ambitions for the firm? We have a very clear North Star, the perfect client experience for extending your home. This is a really meaty problem. There are many stakeholders in a home renovation project, city planners, structural engineers, cost consultants, builders, architects, the list goes on. At the centre of the process is a homeowner who's putting their hard-earned money on the line to do something amazing with their most valuable and personal possession, their home. We are architects first and foremost, and in the perfect position to guide these projects. We have answered so many of the problems so far with each solution, we come closer to shifting the industry forwards and defining this section of the market. I believe Hoco will become the first household name in residential architecture in the UK then internationally. What single thing would most help? At the moment, we're investing time and resources in understanding how AI is going to impact our industry and establishing how we can harness and enable this technology to make the process better for our clients. A high-energy and enthusiastic expert in AI looking to apply their knowledge to our problem is what we're currently looking for. What is the most valuable lesson you have learned? Don't overhire. 
Oka went through a period of rapid growth after COVID. We really started to hit our stride. We had an awesome company culture, a purpose mindset, and it felt like the world was at our fingertips. We raised investment and hired fast and frequently. How many people do you have now? Was a question I hear frequently. This is an ego trap. Gradually, cliques started to form. Toxic culture started to bed in and performance dropped. It was very difficult to unpick these issues which have taken time and, which has taken time and resilience. Now, we are focusing on efficiency over personal growth which has brought us even closer to our purpose as a business. The perfect client experience. What was your best moment? There are so many. Getting the new judge role in BBC Scotland's Home of the Year show, successfully closing a crowdfunding investment on Crowdcube, and winning Great British Entrepreneur of the Year were amazing moments. That The one that brought a tear to my eye most recently was when I overheard some employees discussing how much they love their jobs and how they see value in what we are doing as a company. I thought about this a lot on my own, and it's one of the few, very few times I took a moment to allow myself to feel proud of what I had achieved. What was your worst moment? Thankfully, there are very few. Juggling work with a sudden family illness was very difficult. When my brother Duncan was diagnosed with cancer, I immediately took an extended period of time off. During that time, our management team excelled in my absence and looked after everything so I could focus on what was most important. How do you relax? I have found building a business incredibly addictive, fun and all-encompassing, which makes relaxing very unappealing. I'm very competitive, so I tend to find distraction in sports, particularly playing rugby and crossfit. Pushing my body to the limit helps me to get out, get out of my head and leaves me feeling recharged and with new ideas. Playing with my three little boys is always time well spent and a healthy reminder about perspective and what is really important. As told to Brian Donnelly, the Herald on the 5th of September and the news section. Anasawa accuses Hamza Yousaf of pursuing green extremism by Tom Gordon. Anasawa has accused Hamza Yousaf of pursuing green style extremism in the absence of any coherent vision for the Scottish Government. In a scaling attack that echoed those by the Tories, the Scottish Labour leader said the First Minister was pandering to his Butte House coalition partners. Mr. Yousaf has no central purpose, no clear idea, no ultimate vision for the country, he said. The comments came ahead of Mr. Yousaf delivering his first programme for government at Hoyrood, in which he will try to put his own stamp on his administration. The annual legislative timetable is expected to include measures in improving childcare and tackling poverty through breakfast and after-school clubs. Speaking to PA while campaigning in the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election, Mr. Sawa said Mr. Yousaf was recycling the policies of his predecessor, Nicola Sturgeon. He said the Butte House Agreement, the joint government deal signed by Ms. Sturgeon in 2021, which is unpopular with some SNP MSPs, was driving the FM's decisions. Mr. Sawa said, I think he's trying to do green-style extremism while also trying to do Nicola Sturgeon-style social policy, while also trying to do Alex Salmon-style economic policy, all three of which are inconsistent. 
I think it shows a leader, leader that has no central purpose, no clear idea, no ultimate vision for the country, and he's looking around for individual ideas to try and pass time to try and solidify his own leadership. I think it's clear the SNP has lost its way. They can't run away from that fact that they have a record of failure. Referring to the SNP leadership contest in the spring, Mr. Slaus went on, Hamza Yousaf, who is the continuity candidate, can't run away from it. I think all of this goes to prove that this country needs change. This isn't as good as it gets. I think it's abundantly clear that he lacks a central vision, that he lacks a central mission, and his government don't have any clear direction. And instead, you have individual bits of policy, some of which I think are well-meaning and we would support, but it lacks a coherent plan of how we're going to take Scotland forward. I think it's clear for everyone to see that this is a downgrade, and he's a perfectly nice guy, but he's not up to the job. Speaking to the media in Dundee on Monday, Mr Yousaf said the programme would be delivered against the most difficult time for the public finances in over a decade. The independent the Independent Scottish Fiscal Commission, which scrutinises Holyrood's budget, recently warned there could be a £1 billion shortfall in day-to-day spending next year. It also said the gap between incoming spending could rise to £1.9 billion in four years. Mr Yousaf said, There'll definitely be some initiatives. I hope we'll demonstrate the direction I want to take the government. There's no getting away from the scale of the public finances and the challenge that we face in relation to those public finances. It's the most difficult time, certainly, I've ever seen for the public finances, and I've been in government for 11 years. We know because of the disaster of the mini-budget last year from the UK government that public finances are not just going to be constrained for the year ahead, but I'm afraid for probably many years to come. And that was by Tom Gordon. The Herald on the 5th of September in the news section. Family raises thousands for Scottish Ambulance Service by Jody Harrison. The family of two young boys who were seriously injured in a road traffic accident have raised £5,000 for the Scottish Air Ambulance and its staff. Carson 9 and Calvin 6 suffered head injuries and were put into medically induced comas after their car skidded on ice and flipped twice on a day out in Glenshee. Both were treated at the scene of the crash by EMRS consultants Dr Michael Gillespie and Dr Catherine Bennett and were airlifted to the Royal Hospital for Children in Glasgow. Carson stayed in hospital for six weeks, while Calvin was in hospital for three weeks. Both boys are now back at school part-time. Their mother, Sheree Burrs, praised the care for her two boys received from the crew. She said the boys were kept side by side all throughout their treatment from the air ambulance to the hospital stay. Dr Gillespie dropped by the hospital a few times during their treatment and was actually there the first time they both woke up. He's always kept in touch with the boys. The family raised the money as a way to say thank you to the Scottish Ambulance Services, Scottish Specialist Transfer and Retrieval, Scott Star which provided the children's emergency care. The donation has helped fund the purchase of highly specialised mannequins. Ms Burrs added, The boys have met Michael and Kat a few times now, and have thoroughly enjoyed sitting, uh, visiting the Scott Star team at their base to see the training mannequins in use. Michael Dixon, Chief Executive at SES, said, We are so pleased that Carson and Calvin have recovered so well after such a traumatic incident. Our Scott Star 
team are an essential part of the Scottish Ambulance Service, providing the very best care to patients, often in the most challenging of circumstances. Kirsten Watson, CEO of Glasgow Children's Hospital Charity, added, It's incredible to see how this young family harnessed a traumatic situation into fundraising that could potentially save lives through effective training. Their exceptional fundraising supports an all-inspiring team over at Scottstar, whom the charity is delighted to continue supporting. The Herald on the 5th of September and the news. Edinburgh, Cannon Mills Royal Botanical Garden Police Box Sale by Ian McConnell. A former police box in Edinburgh is to go under the hammer with the opening bid set at £22,000 plus. The police box was most recently operating as a flower shop business, but a new owner could opt to use it for a variety of different purposes, Auction House Scotland said. Located on the corner of Brandon Terrace and Howard Street in the Cannon Mills area to the north of the city centre, the former police box is close to the Royal Botanical Garden. Auction House Scotland, which is selling the former police box at its next-in-room auction in 2pm on September 13 at the Radisson R.E.D. Hotel in Glasgow, said dating back to the 1930s, Edinburgh's iconic police boxes are very much part of the city and can be found all over the capital, with some now operating as coffee shops, eateries and even a pop-up for hire. In the days before mobile phones, the police boxes were an important lifeline to Bobby's on the beat. Use them to check in with the station and receive their orders. It added the inside of the unit is in fair condition, with a number of original character features retained, with the added benefits of electricity supply, water connection, currently shut off, and a telephone point to reinstall a landline if required. Auction House Scotland noted a rolling grand lent lease is in place, with Edinburgh City Council at £50 per count a month to cover the box site and small surrounding area. Mandy Cooper, Managing Director of Auction House Scotland, said this former police box offers a small business owner the chance to own a piece of Edinburgh's history and operate their business in a truly unique setting. What's more, the unit is in a fantastic location that benefits from high levels of local and tourist footfall, along with a number of bus stops close by. The auction will also be live-streamed, allowing interested bidders the option to watch and bid online, and telephone and proxy bidding is also available if potential buyers are unable to attend the auction to bid in person. All bidders are required to register to bid before participating. And that was by Ian McConnell. The Herald on the 5th of September and the news section. Edinburgh Attack leaves three... Ukrainians in Hospital by Gabriel Mackay. Three Ukrainian teenagers were assaulted in Edinburgh with one stabbed in what was being treated as a racially motivated incident. At around 8.30pm on Sunday, September 3, two 13-year-olds and a 15-year-old were walking towards a bus stop in Nedry Mains Road. They were approached by eight young people dressed in black, two of whom slashed one of the 13-year-old's ear with a knife. The other two were then attacked by other members of the group, with the other 13-year-old boy stabbed and the eldest punched. The group of eight men then ran off into the night. The injured boys were treated in hospital, and the incident was reported to police on Monday 4, September 2023. Officers are treating the incident as a racially aggravated and are reviewing CCTV footage. 
Detective Inspector Keith Fairburn said, I know there were members of the public in the area at the time of the attack, and I'm asking them to contact us with any information they may have. We're appealing for details on the group of youths who were dressed in dark clothing. Perhaps you saw them somewhere else. Did you see them running off? Any small piece of information could assist us in identifying those responsible for these attacks. Anyone with information is asked to call Police Scotland via 101, closing incident number 2523. You can also call Crime Stoppers and give your information anonymously. They can be contacted on 0800 555 111. And that was by Gabriel Mackay. The Herald on the 5th of September and the news section. Sarwar claims by-election victory will earn him fight to be next FM. And Sarwar has claimed that victory in a key by-election can hand Scottish Labour momentum to take party up to the Hollywood elections in 2026. Scottish Labour leader said that securing victory in the by-election would help him begin to earn the right for people to regard me as being competitive to become First Minister come 2026. He said residents in Rutherglen and Hamilton West can now get closure after three years without adequate representation. The constituency's by-election has been confirmed for October 5 after the seat was vacated by former SNP MP Margaret Ferrier following a successful recall petition after her conviction for breaking, breaching COVID restrictions in 2020. It is expected to be an important battleground ahead of the UK general election, which is expected next year, with the SNP's Katie Loudon taking on Labour's Michael Shanks. The seat is regarded as Labour's to lose, and failure to secure the seat and double its tally of MPs north of the border would stunt Sir Keir Starmer's confidence in securing a big victory in the next general election. Welcoming the by-election date, Mr Sawa said, I think it's fantastic that we finally have a date and that it's going to be as soon as practically possible from this moment, given that this community has not had adequate representation for the last three years. That has been a failure, of course, on Margaret Ferrier's part, but actually a failure on the SNP's part as well. On his party's chances of winning, he said, this is a significant by-election. There is no escaping that. We are not complacent. Speaking on how a win could impact the party ahead of next year's general election, he said, we've got to continue that momentum, but that momentum is there for a purpose. For far too long now, the people of Scotland and the UK have been let down by two failing governments. Mr Sawa previously hit out at First Minister Hamza Yousaf's leadership so far, as he said his opponent was not up to the top job. But he insisted that a win at the upcoming by-election will show that he can be considered for the job of First Minister in the 2026 Scottish Parliament elections. He said, I think we have earned the right to be listened to again. We are now earning the right, I think, to be supported again, but we've still got a long way to go. And I want to earn the right for people to regard me as being competitive to become First Minister come 2026. We're making good progress on that, but that's the ultimate end game. It's not just delivering the UK Labour government, but delivering a Labour government here in Scotland. And that was by David Ball. That concludes this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Tune Review. Tell your friends about our service. 